0: Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Elliot Lee about the importance of sleep. Dr. Lee is a psychiatrist whose practice focuses exclusively on sleep disorders. He practices in the sleep disorders clinic at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center, where he has treated several lawyers. Dr. Lee is also an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Medicine and a popular speaker in the legal community. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Dr. Lee.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here. Various research studies that I've read recently have identified a rather disturbing trend in the legal profession. It seems that lawyers aren't sleeping. And while many of the lawyers that I work with say they know that they should sleep more, but they just don't. And they're kind of proud of it, wearing it almost like a badge of honor. And I know when I was in practice, I used to be pretty impressed with myself too for being able to balance work and family, what I thought was really well, on less than six hours of sleep most nights. Now I know better. um, But I'd like to start by asking you, why why do we need to sleep?
1: Well, um, the bottom line is ultimately, we don't know why we need to sleep. But we know Uh, There was a very famous scientist named Alan Rechtschaffen. I shouldn't say was, he's still alive, (laughs) who said, if sleep doesn't serve an essential, uh, pivotal function in life, uh, then that's God's biggest mistake in the world. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, essentially, sleep must serve a vital function. We know that for animals, when they're chronically sleep deprived, they end up dying. Now, these experiments are no longer ethical to do, but it takes about six weeks for Animals to die after being chronically sleep deprived, but usually they die from uh, sepsis. So uh, we know that sleep must play uh, a very important role in restoring uh, mood and energy and cognitive function. You know, people, when they sleep well, they just feel a little bit better. It probably plays a role in regulating immune function. So that I think is of particular importance with you know, the COVID 19 pandemic. I was actually just reading a study recently suggesting, uh, probably quite accurately, that. Our shift workers, who are probably the people taking care of people in the hospital, are actually more vulnerable to developing COVID because they're shift workers, right? They're not Mm. sleeping well or as much. And I think another big thing that's gained a lot of traction lately is that sleep plays an important role in clearing waste products from the brain. Uh, There's a a system that's been newly discovered called the glymphatic system, which essentially suggests that sleep plays uh, sort of like a dishwasher role to. Uh, take away waste products from the brain like something called beta amyloid and tau. These are the proteins that are the constituents and hallmark findings for Alzheimer's disease. So we know that people don't sleep well, we see accumulations of these proteins, and that's led to an exciting area of research. If we could get people to sleep better, could we delay or even prevent the onset of these neurocognitive disorders? So it's just a sampling of some of the uh, issues surrounding sleep and why it's so important for us to, to maintain.
0: That's fascinating, and just on that point about you know what's going on in the brain, what actually happens in our brains when we sleep?
1: Well, that's a that's a complicated <laughs> question. Uh, okay, so, for a
0: little, simplify for us
1: lawyers. <laughs> so well, uh, we know that actually a lot of uh, sleep used to be thought of as a very sort of uh, inactive and passive process, but. We know uh, actually from lots of other studies that this is far from the truth. The brain is actually very active, but changing all the time uh, in sleep. We know that uh, at a molecular level, level, there are lots of uh, products that are produced uh, from the brain proteins and things like this. We know that on some level, probably fundamentally, every receptor in our body is kind of getting reset uh, to to take on the, the next day. So we know, for example, that when people are sleep deprived for whatever reason, either a lack of quantity or quality of sleep, then everything, anything that they have is just worse the next day. So hmm. for example, if you if one has a predisposition to depression, then the next day they're more depressed. Uh, if one is a little bit emotional, you'd be more emotional the, the next day, more irritable. Uh, or if you have a problem with pain, then you'll have more pain. If you have some memory issues, those will be worse the, the next day. So. Uh, but, uh, this has been a question that has been stumping, uh, scientists forever, but slowly we're teasing away little tiny bits and pieces of the answers to this. Mm-hmm.
0: And I've heard that there are various stages of sleep. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't even want to try to explain it. Um, I'm just wanting to hear from you. Is, is that, first of all, is that true? Do we go through stages of sleep? And, and if so, what are they?
1: Yeah, so uh, this has this uh, been uh, known for the last 50 years. Uh, so sleep is divided into several main stages. N1 and N2 are like light stages of sleep. And then N3 is sort of the deepest, most physically and cerebrally restorative stage of sleep. So that's sometimes called deep sleep or slow wave sleep, but that's the, the deep sleep that people really think of the where you're really kind of uh, out. And then the peculiar one is the REM sleep, So uh, REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement sleep. Uh, It's a very interesting stage of sleep that's a very puzzling and fascinating. We do most of our dreaming in REM sleep, 85% of our dreams occur in REM sleep. Curiously, the brain is very active. When you look at the EEG, the brain was, it almost looks like they're awake, but all of the muscles in the body are completely paralyzed with the exception of the diaphragm to keep us breathing uh, Mm. and the eyes. Now, why the eyes? Boy, your guess would be as good as mine. But the eyes uh, start moving quite, uh, uh, quite frenetically, uh, potentially in REM sleep. Certainly more so when people have a history of psychiatric illness, and that's another like interesting marker. Why? Why would the eyes be moving? Why are they so busy uh, in in REM sleep? So. Mm-hmm. And- uh we think that rem sleep plays a role in regulating or modulating emotional memories and so this is an area of research that we're quite interested in because we see that people who have a very fragmented uh or broken up rem sleep they tend to have much more difficulties regulating mood and anxiety in the day
0: and are there certain times of the night where we are more likely to be in rem sleep as opposed to the other three stages that you mentioned
1: oh yes that's correct so Uh, Everybody has like a sleep architecture or a fingerprint, if you will, uh, where we usually have more deep sleep in the first half of the night uh, and then more REM sleep in the second half of the night and then REM cycles across the night in approximately 90 minute uh, intervals with more REM sleep in the second half. So as the night progresses, the sleep cycles get longer and longer as the night progresses. And an average person has maybe four to six REM cycles throughout the night, perhaps about 25% of the sleep is spent in REM sleep and 20 to 25% is spent in slow wave sleep. And the majority, uh, the rest of sleep almost is spent in the stage N2 sleep, which is kind of a transition stage between uh, N3 and REM, but probably has its own functions as well.
0: Hmm. So what are the consequences then of disrupting sleep at the different stages?
1: So we think that slow wave sleep or the deep sleep probably plays an important role in Uh, facilitating consolidating declarative memories, which are memories for facts and events. Uh, But uh, whereas REM sleep might uh, play more of an important role in emotional uh, memory, uh, we think that uh, the light sleep may play an important role in consolidating procedural memories. Uh, Again, this is just related to memory, but also how they're related to restoring the body physically uh, and restoring other things like immune competence, that's still not uh, really clear. So, uh, but to kind of understand those things, and, and this may give some light, shed some light into the uh, difficulties with uh, sacrificing uh, quality of sleep, or if sleep is very fragmented. Um, if we have a tra- trauma that uh, we might experience, so let's just say, like, a car accident is a very simple uh, trauma to uh, think about the brain will make a lot of memories for that event. Uh, so there'll be a lot of what we call declarative memories. So the facts for the event, this is like the time of day that the accident happened, the street that you were on, the um, the color of the car that you, know, you might've gotten hit by, but you also have a lot of emotional memories for the event, the, the fear and the anxiety as the car was going to hit you and things like this. So if you mm-hmm. talk to someone right after that uh, car accident, all the emotional memories and uh, declarative memories come together. Oh my God, it was uh, 4 p.m. It was on Green Street. I thought I was gonna die. Uh, I was scared for my life, You know, whatever. Uh, But if you let someone sleep on it and then talk to them about the accident the next day, usually the declarative memories are still intact, but the emotional memory has gone down. So they're not quite as emotional, but they can still remember, yeah, it was four o'clock, but I really thought I was gonna die. I was probably pretty emotional yesterday, but it's a little bit better. Uh, Today, uh, yeah, it was Green Street. Yeah, I think it was 401, you know, things like this. So the Mm -hmm. declarative memory stays intact, but the emotional memory goes down. And if you talk to someone a week after the accident, so, you know, seven sleeps afterward, usually they're much less emotional about it, but they can still retain those factual events of the uh, memory. So, but what happens, for example, uh, for people who can't forget that trauma, uh, you know, someone like uh, someone who has, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you talk to them a week after, it's like that event happened yesterday. Right. And so many people believe that, you know, people who develop PTSD, it might actually be a reflection of the failure of this uh, REM sleep function to dump that emotional memory, if you will. So um, uh, this is a, a theory that's been promoted by Matthew Walker. He calls it the sleep to forget hypothesis. That. The role, one of the roles of sleep may be not only to consolidate uh, memory and remember things, but also uh, get rid of uh, emotional uh, memories. I kind of think of it like like email. You know, when people check their email uh, in in the morning, what's the first thing they usually do? Like scan what came in, you know, on a previous day, and then you get rid of the spam, and then you sort that, you know, this is an important email, and you sort it and put it in a, an important folder that you need to act on or look at uh, later. But what happens if you happen to accidentally uh, open one of those spam emails and it has a huge file with it, right? Then <laughs> you get that little circle of thinking, 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 <laughs> and then you're stuck, right? You can't you you can't open your other emails, you can't work on anything, uh, and then uh, you know you if you don't smash your computer, right, you you kind of wait and then eventually it kind of uh, uh, opens up and then you can move on. But uh, you know, in some ways, that might uh, be similar to what happens in our brains when we have a huge traumatic event. It's like you opened it and you can't get rid of it. You can't dump it. And if your computer is not efficient enough, you'll just sit there, kind of uh, perseverating on the memory over and over again. And so, this might be in a way uh, how uh, PTSD might work uh, in the brain. And so maybe we think that by facilitating sleep, it's like making your upgrading your computer to like an i7 chip from an i3. Then it might be better able to process that. So you can, you know, kind of chop up the file so that you can eventually. Uh, discard that, you know, those memories uh, in in a reasonable fashion. Mm,
0: So interesting. So interesting. And it sounds like there are so many new research areas coming up all the time. Uh, And I know you have treated a few lawyer uh, patients at the sleep disorder clinics, and I'm wondering um, if you've noticed any common sleep issues that lawyers uh, have sought treatment for.
1: Well, I think the biggest uh, issue, and we saw this uh, with certain lawyer groups that we've talked to, and certainly with our talks, is that lawyers, like you said, they don't sleep enough, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that uh, in order for sleep to be restorative, you need three things to happen. You need a good quantity of sleep. uh, Usually for most people, that's seven to nine hours. You need a good quality of sleep. uh, And that's where um, sleep disorders sometimes come in. And you also need to sleep at the right time relative uh, you know, to your own internal clock. And I think the biggest two things that I see with lawyers as a group, in my experience, one, they don't get enough sleep. They're staying up late uh, and, or they might get up too early. Uh, and they also don't sleep at the right time relative to their own internal clock. And probably a more subtle thing that, uh, well, I mean all groups, but I think lawyers would be more vulnerable to is when you don't sleep at the right time, you can't sleep as well. If you're off in terms of your internal clock, both quality and quantity will suffer. I mean, they're essentially becoming sort of chronic shift workers if mm. um, you know, they're not, they're not uh, addressing that timing of sleep. And we see that the biggest thing that suffers with uh, lack of quantity of sleep is actually cognitive function. That's actually the first thing to go when people are sleep deprived.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's pretty serious for lawyers.
1: <laughs> well, and, and that's just it, right? I mean, you know, it really depends on your context, right? So, I mean, I use an analogy of a hockey player. If you're like Sidney Crosby, you know, your NHL, former MVP, uh, whatever, you know, even if he, if he's physically injured or can't play up to his full capacity, if he's playing with midget hockey players, like it's not actually a problem for him. Like nobody will know that he's really injured and not playing to its full capacity. But if, uh, he's, um, uh, if, if he's uh playing in the game seven Stanley Cup finals uh you know then and he's injured then you're gonna see the difference right and so this is where the issue with the lawyers uh comes in because uh you know lawyers i i think you know for the most part they're in they're practicing in a context that's very cognitively demanding for their own um uh, cognitive resources so when you're taxing those resources uh you know to their to their limit then any small deficit uh can, can manifest a sort of big differences to, to whatever they're practicing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you talk about that internal clock, um, how, how do we know what that is? I imagine it's, it's unique to everyone. How, how do we tap into that? How do we know what that is? If our lives are sort of dictated by the regular, uh, work schedule?
1: Yeah. So that, that can be a real challenge with the work, uh, schedule. So most people they're, their internal clock is a very small organ in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. But it says to most people's bodies, go to bed at 11 p.m. and wake up at 7 a.m. But obviously, there can be some range uh, to that. Some people are more night owls. Some people are more early birds. But the way to figure out what your clock is telling you is that you go on holidays for uh, two weeks. Usually, it takes you about a week to adjust to the new environment that you're on. Uh, And then during that two weeks, they'll go to bed when you feel sleepy and wake up when your body tells you to wake up. And usually what'll happen is after uh, three to seven days, your body will actually naturally gravitate to its normal sleep cycle, uh, assuming that you don't have any other stressors or other obligations that are interfering with that. And then from there, you can track what your normal sleep schedule is. That's probably the easiest way to figure out what our own, uh, what we call chronotype uh, is.
0: Okay, and what if that uh, chronotype isn't consistent with our work schedule? How can we adjust? Yeah. And
1: yeah. <laughs> so that and that becomes a problem. So uh, I will say I should mention there are several questionnaires that people can fill out uh, that where you can also determine your chronotype too by scoring it uh, appropriately. They're available online. Uh, one is called the Morning Eveningness Questionnaire. It's uh, I think it's about sixty questions, but. You, you, if you answer them honestly, and then you can score it, and then you can figure out what your uh, probable chronotype might be. But sometimes work issues can interfere with people's ability to answer those questions. Uh, so, but yeah, if your work schedule does not agree with your uh, chronotype, the best thing you can do is actually to make your work schedule agree. Not everybody mm-hmm. has that luxury.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so, But if not, there are ways to shift your chronotype with judicious use of timed light therapy with or without timed melatonin. And those two things can help modulate the uh, the circadian rhythm uh, to a limited extent, but people have to be very consistent with that to make it effective. Sometimes that can be enhanced with other uh, procedures as well, um, timing of meals, um, certain special glasses to limit light exposure in the evenings, uh, things like this. But usually timed light therapy and timed melatonin, if done consistently and at the right time, can be effective at shifting that uh, internal clock.
0: Hmm. And so how do we know if we're getting enough quality sleep?
1: Well, so uh, the big thing is to really assess how people feel in in the day. So usually the big question I ask uh, my patients is, do you feel satisfied with the quality of your sleep? Uh, if the answer is yes, it's unlikely that there's a sleep problem, but even then there still uh, can be. But usually that's the first sign uh, that there's a, a problem. People just feel a little bit tired in the day. Usually that fatigue or sleepiness will, if it's a sleep disorder, it'll be the highest and usually the mid-afternoon, usually between two and six PM. So we all have a normal dip in our alertness during that time. But when there's a problem with the Quality or quantity or timing of sleep. That dip uh, in the mid-afternoon would become accentuated, and people often, uh, you know, telltale signs of this: dozing in meetings, uh, mm. or needing to nap in the day, or trying to, you know, go for that coffee in the mid-afternoon. Those are usually signs that one either hasn't had enough sleep the previous night or multiple nights, uh, or uh, there might be some other issue like with the quality of sleep, for example.
0: Right. Right. And on that point about napping, um, yeah, what's your what's your view on napping? I've, I've heard different things. I've heard from some that, you know, great as long as it's um, short and before a certain time, other views are just no, it doesn't matter. It's always going to affect the amount of, and quality of your sleep in the, in the nighttime. So what's your view on that?
1: Well, it's a complicated question because it really depends on the context, right? So the general public you know, for a public consumption, we recommend, you know, not taking more than a 30-minute nap uh, in the day. Usually a long uh, a nap longer than 30 minutes will start to affect one's ability to sleep the following night, but it really depends on how much you slept the previous night. So, for example, if you uh, didn't get much sleep the previous night, you know, only maybe four hours or, or whatever, then a nap can actually be quite helpful in the mid-afternoon to kind of pay off some of that sleep debt that wasn't paid off from a full night's sleep. Uh, on the other hand, um, if you uh, if you slept really well, you know, then, um, but you need to do something very important, maybe an important presentation or uh, some kind of uh, performance, then uh, a mid-afternoon nap, even that's a little bit longer, could actually be helpful. Now, I'm thinking just as a, as a more extreme context, uh, if like professional athletes, for example, like they don't really care how they perform in the mid-afternoon. They really care how they perform in the evenings, usually when those those uh, you know, hockey games or basketball games are occurring. I mean, I guess they can occur in the mid-afternoon sometimes too. But for, for that context where you need to be at your absolute maximum uh, peak ability in the evening, then they'll actually nap in the mid-afternoon and that can actually be helpful for them and even nap for two, three, four hours or even uh, longer if, if your name is LeBron James, for example. <laughs> um, you know, So in that case, though, that nap can be helpful because then they don't care about their sleep the following night because... They just need to be good for that one game, you know, and then they they can sort out their, the rest of their sleep a little bit later. So it's very uh, context dependent, but as a general rule, um, 15 to 30 minute uh, nap during the day probably is helpful for people as long as it doesn't go over a certain tipping point at which it may affect uh, one's sleep the following uh, day.
0: Right. Uh, It is
1: person dependent.
0: And I guess um, you don't want to do it too late in the day either.
1: That's right. If, if you do it, yeah. the, the timing of it also matters. Probably the, the time that you'll get the most impact for uh, or benefit for your nap is usually in that dip uh, in alertness that usually for most people, again, that's 2 to 6 p.m. Um, usually it's actually very hard to nap from 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, unless people are sleep deprived to begin with. That's been sometimes called the forbidden zone or the mm-hmm. wake maintenance known zone because at that time, uh, we actually have a peak in our circadian uh, alertness. So, uh, But napping in that moment, first of all, that quality nap is probably not going to be that good. And secondly, if you do manage to nap, you're going to have a real hard time uh, not not only potentially falling asleep, but actually staying asleep that following night.
0: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that point, you talk about uh, the sleep debt. Can we make up, I'm, again, thinking about lawyers practicing and working throughout some nights during the week and thinking, well, it's not a problem, I'll be able to make up my sleep deficit on the weekend. Is that possible?
1: (laughs) So uh, yes, yes, and no. Uh, Yeah, it's a chronic uh, issue. So I mean, a couple of things I just want to say about that. Um, We know that if people are chronically partially sleep deprived, that sort of or have some chronic partial sleep restriction, that's sort of the term. So in other words, something four hours a night every night for five nights, we know that after that week, the deficits that you see at the end of the week are comparable to the deficit seen if someone pulled an all-nighter, right? When you look at their objective performance on like uh, reaction tasks and cognitive tasks and things like this. But what's really interesting is when you survey the people, you know, survey someone who pulled an all-nighter, how do you think you did? How, how tired do you think you are? Uh, and then survey the person who did the chronic partial sleep restriction after a week, their answers will be uh, quite different. The person who's totally sleeper, they'll, oh yeah, I'm tired, I'm impaired, yeah, I don't think I'm really, I don't think I'm really doing this uh, that well. But the person who's chronically partially sleep restricted, they're like, ah, I'm a little tired, but I'm okay. They all overestimate their abilities and sometimes dramatically. We see this for doctors and residents in training. This is actually a huge uh, problem for, for example, the the Royal College um, uh, for uh, residents, for instance. So. Uh, We know that those residents who are uh, on call, if they're on call multiple times, they actually make uh, a lot more errors, uh, medical errors. But the key that people don't realize, they don't realize that they made the errors. Mm -hmm. So uh, and they just go on and even serious medical errors. So I know I know the doctor situation is a little bit different because, you know, they're more active at night and there's some circadian issues. But, um, you know, I can imagine for uh, lawyers, you don't know that you made uh, a bad decision or missed something until like someone points it out. I I don't know if that makes sense, right? So, uh, you know, it's not a mistake unless someone finds it, right?
0: Right, right. Um, And sometimes it's not for, you know, several years down the road, which
1: is kind of scary. Yeah, and and so this is the big issue with that chronic sleep uh, restriction that we all overestimate our abilities when we're uh, awake. So to get back to your question about paying off that sleep debt, we know that if you go sort of with, virtually no sleep or very little sleep for three nights, you know, maybe two or three hours of sleep per night. If you spend one night of like s- solid sleep, uh, you know, you can sleep for like 11 or 12 hours, you will roughly be at the same uh, level as, um, you know, someone who slept uh, normally af- after that uh, interval. Obviously, I mean, you suffer in the three nights, but so in other words, roughly, you can make up for three nights of really poor sleep with one night of really solid sleep. So Hence the, uh, you know, the five day work week, you know, getting paid off on, on the weekends. But the thing is, then you're manifesting those significant uh, deficits, cognitive deficits on the Thursday, Friday, Friday, right when you might actually be in the most, those might be the most important days in terms of decision-making. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know specifically about lawyers, but I know for a doctor, it's like... So many important decisions come on Thursday and Friday, everything kind of accumulates over the week. And Hmm. that's where you need to make some more important uh, decisions. And that's where if, you know, they're more vulnerable to actually making more mistakes if they're chronically uh, sleep deprived.
0: Right, right. Wow, so complicated. I'm just wondering, I've heard also the term sleep hygiene, are there sort of any tips that uh, generally can can help improve the quality and and quantity of our sleep? Or again, is that something that's so individual?
1: Uh, Well, um, it's partially individual, but there are many things that people can do on their own to improve their sleep. I mean, the first thing I think to think about is to make sleep a priority. As far as we know, there's no known surrogate available for good sleep. So when people talk about, oh, if I'm sleepy, I just take a cup of coffee or I roll down the window to keep myself awake or I turn on the radio to keep myself alert. All of those things, they only mask sleepiness that's there. They don't actually address the underlying sleep deficit and uh, accumulated uh, problems that uh, accrue. Hmm. So to make sleep a priority and try to get seven to nine hours of sleep uh, in the night Um after that, there are many other behaviors that people uh, can do. The next most important thing after the quantity is the timing. Try to go to bed at the right time and wake up at the right time. Going to, if you're a normal person where your circadian cycle is 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., the idea that you can go to sleep at two and wake up at 10 that actually doesn't fly. There's going to be some level at which if you try to go to bed at three, you're only going to be able to sleep until seven or eight. Right? We mm-hmm. all have our own circadian rhythm that will wake us up and disrupt our architecture if we sleep at the, the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we want to uh, look at our sleep habits. We try to uh, develop a relaxing routine before bedtime. We really need to decrease that arousal uh, before uh, bed. So uh, it's important actually to avoid any kind of backlight screens within usually two hours before bedtime is what I suggest. Uh, there are several uh, studies showing that if you get exposed to uh, light from these LED screens like the iPhone or iPads, Uh, These things can shift your circadian cycle, essentially tricking your brain into thinking it's uh, daytime and will compromise your ability to fall asleep and and, or stay asleep uh, at nighttime. Uh, It's important that the bed is only used for sleep uh, Hmm. or romance, but uh, (laughs) not not for work activities, uh, not for things that are uh, stimulating or stressful. You want to associate the bed uh, with sleep. Um, We want to avoid any kind of things that sabotage your sleep at night. So alcohol, marijuana, uh, these kinds of things. Often people assume that they can be helpful for sleep. And there may be certain cases where there can be an exception, but by and large chronic use of those mood altering substances tends to uh, sabotage uh, sleep. Although there may be some uh, exceptions. Uh, during the night, we we want to, uh, if we're awake longer than 20 minutes, we should get out of bed and do something that's boring and not, uh, interesting. And then return to bed when sleep, we don't want to be tossing and turning all night, um, you know, in bed. I think one of the biggest tips I can uh, give to sort of the general public is to avoid clock watching at night. So sleep is really yeah. funny thing. The harder you try to sleep, the worse uh, it is. And so what happens when you look at the clock? Oh, it's 12 o'clock. Why am I not asleep? It's 1am. I'm still not asleep. It's 4am. I only have two hours to sleep before I get up. It actually makes you think more about your sleep. I mean, <laughs> I think the worst thing that was ever invented was that. Uh, Clock uh, that projects the time on the ceiling. I mean, just oh, yeah. you open your eyes, and then you think about <laughs> sleep right, right away. So, uh, I mean, there are more tips than that, but these are some things that people can do on their own to help them help themselves with their sleep.
0: Yeah, and it just reminded me of um, something that I tried: a sleep tracker. Uh, I remember using the Fitbit for a while. Uh mm-hmm. and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I got a little obsessed with it myself, but I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on the effectiveness of those trackers.
1: So there, you know, uh the sleep technologies, uh, what's called wearables, these are sleep trackers like uh, and by the way, I have no commercial relationship with any of these devices, <laughs> but when I mention their names, it's only because it's just what I see from practice, but I don't. I don't get any financial benefit from them, but like Fitbits and uh, Jawbone and things like this. Uh, There are nearables, so these are things that are sit near the the bed, like the iPhone you put on the pillow or or things like this. And um, uh, uh, there are other technologies like mattresses that can measure your sleep. So by and large, like and I just use the Fitbits as an example, they're actually not bad in terms of assessing the quality and quantity of sleep that uh, you're getting. I mean, we use a, a version of these technologies in sleep medicine called actigraphy, uh, which uh, we use to essentially quantify the amount of sleep that people are getting if we're looking for uh, certain kinds of patterns, for example, in something called circadian rhythm disorders. As a group, I think, you know, depending on the kind of question you ask uh, and what specific issue you're looking for, maybe 50 to 80% accuracy, depending on the type of question you're asking, that's actually not bad, you know, that that You know, many cases it's 70, 80, maybe even 85% accurate. And we've compared these, you know, in our sleep lab to kind of validate this. The biggest problem is you don't know which uh, 80% of your sleep might be accurate from that Fitbit. So that's Mm -hmm. one issue. Like, is it right on the first half or the second half or something in the middle? You know, uh, it's not really clear. Um, The uh, second issue is, that, it's not clear how useful that data is, at least to you know uh, the public person. And we do, you know, there's another condition that's been documented called orthosomnia, which speaks a little bit to what you're describing. Some people get so obsessed or uh, preoccupied with the data on their tracker that that in itself develops a sleep problem. Oh, I only got six and a half hours of sleep last night. Where, it, first of all, it might be seven, and they might have missed half an hour, or an hour of sleep uh, at night. But then they're constantly trying to get that seven and a half or eight hours, you know, from the data. Uh, And then that in itself kind of uh, gives a problem because as we said, the the single biggest saboteur of sleep is thinking about your sleep. You know, it's like taking a golf swing, right? The the more you think about it, then the worse it is. But if you just relax and let it happen, then um, that's where uh, things can uh, then start to occur more naturally. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we know. uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say, I remember I used to challenge the statistics in the morning. I would look and see what, uh, you know, what the statistics said. And I said, well, that's really strange because I feel great. And it's telling me that I didn't sleep very much um, or the converse. Uh, so, yeah, I I found it was helpful in the end just to sort of give me a general awareness uh, over time of how things might change, might have changed um but actually on that point something else that i heard and i've always wondered about was is i remember being focused on the uh, amount of deep sleep and rem sleep and not the f- overall total duration is that true like i was told oh if you get 2 hours of rem sleep and 2 hours of deep sleep you're good to go
1: yeah so for most people that's uh, that's reasonably accurate what we see now i i I can only speak to what we see, but usually for most people, it's not a matter of the quantity of deep sleep or REM sleep. I mean, we know people will, excuse me, will will get that when uh, there are no issues, but it's rather the quality of deep sleep and uh, REM sleep. And that's something that those uh, uh, Fitbits and other sleep trackers are, they're not necessarily that good at uh, picking up. Uh, But the amount, yeah, they're actually pretty, pretty good. But it's, you know, if the, if the quality is no good, then the quantity doesn't matter.
0: Right, right. And also, I wanted to just uh, go back to that point you mentioned about uh, smartphones and blue light, uh, being sort of sleep disruptors. Some people have um, eyeglasses that claim to sort of block out that blue light. Do those work? And if you had glasses like that, would it it be okay to be on your phone or on the computer or even reading an e-reader? you know, closer to bedtime.
1: So, uh, uh, so that, that's a very good point. It, it becomes a little bit of a complex question, but the short answer is yes. Uh, I think those blue blockers can be very helpful. There's two things about the phone, uh, or the backlit screens get, that can sabotage our sleep at night. So one is that, uh, light and specifically blue light that can again, trick that brain into thinking it's daytime. It actually suppresses the production of melatonin from the brain that we normally need to facilitate and uh, consolidate sleep uh, at night. Uh, So the blue blocker glasses essentially uh, phase out that blue wavelength of light. They're usually an orange tint that you wear for a couple hours before uh, going to bed. And that can be very uh, helpful for uh, blocking the the light uh, shifting effects um, of um, these devices on melatonin. But there's a second piece of the phone that often is overlooked and, you know, When we look at sleep, not only is there a biology to sleep and that's all the melatonin and light that I kind of talked about, but there's also a significant psychology to sleep. And we know that these phones and devices, they're very stimulating at at night. This is probably most commonly seen with teenagers because if they're texting at night, what are they usually doing? They're texting, you know, oh, my God, Joey kissed Sally, you know, (laughs) behind the school, And uh, Rebecca is going to be really upset about that. Like it's very stimulating. And um uh, uh maybe depending on the content like anxiety provoking or, or uh, stressful and it's that arousal that will actually sabotage sleep but the same thing can occur if you're checking emails you know at night like oh it's an account did, did you get the account done did you have to do this or whatever then those things are all that that psychological piece of uh the content from the the e-reader or iphone is also going to sabotage your sleep as well and no amount of uh, blue lock blue blocking uh, blue light blocking glass is going to help with that.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what might help with that?
1: Uh, Well, (laughs) first of all, getting rid of that at bedtime. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sometimes when people like a common thing that we hear, uh, and this is also with lawyers, is I'm thinking about so many things at at night that I have to to do. And then that, again, that arousal can sabotage sleep. Uh, We teach a a simple cognitive technique called worry time. So what we ask people to do is maybe pick a half an hour uh, earlier in the evening uh, where you're totally by yourself and you write down all the things that you have to do. And sometimes you make like short term, medium, and long term uh, things that you have to do and write it down in a list. And then after that half hour is up, then you tell yourself, I'm not allowed to think about these things anymore. If I think about something new, I'll just write it down the next day because you're going to do that every day uh, and keep writing this down in kind of a journal and then check off the things as you do them uh, the following day. And then what happens if pe- you know, people have to do it over time and have to do it consistently, you start to train your brain to shift the thinking of these worries to earlier in the evening as opposed to late at night. And then again, if these thoughts kind of intrude on you at night, you gotta, uh, whether it becomes hitting yourself or just training your brain to kind of uh, deflect thinking about those worries until earlier in the day. And then this can be very helpful for sleep if people do it consistently.
0: Wow, what a, that's a great idea. Oh, I really like that. I wish
1: I could take credit for it, but it's not mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. um yeah, and then uh, along with that, you know the idea of this sort of this busy brain which many lawyers um you know, uh, unfortunately uh, are plagued with at three four am uh, other ways when it's happening like this is this worry time is great to sort of prevent it but what about in in the moment is there anything that you can do aside from as you mentioned earlier getting up if you're lying sort of staring at the ceiling hopefully not the clock on the ceiling but if you're staring at the ceiling for you know more than 20 minutes get up and do something that's not super stimulating but you know is there anything else that we could do in the moment um to sort Uh, of help calm ourselves
1: yeah so um if, uh, you know, people are, are thinking about uh, worries in the middle of the night, I, again, it depends on the kind of worry it is. So, uh, I mean, the simplest thing, if, if it's something fairly quick that you can get rid of, oh, I just need to, you know, get this uh, out of my head, writing it down somewhere then can be helpful so you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point though, that sometimes could become toxic to sleep because if you keep doing that at night, then it's almost like rewarding yourself to wake up in the middle of the night to write these things down. And then that's where it can sometimes become a problem, so you just have to be careful about doing those kinds of things. So this is why, for example, like if you wake in the middle of the night, you know, some people ask, "Well, why don't I just exercise to make myself tired, or do the dishes, or you know, do some chores at night?" Well, again, those things, while it can be productive at night, you know, and it might even make you feel good, that can actually be a problem because if you're if you're doing these chores and you're getting a reward and you feel like, "Well, I got something done." it's kind of like rewarding yourself for waking up in the middle of the night and then you may inadvertently train yourself to wake up at the night to, to do those kinds of things. right. So, right. Um, there's a bit of a tipping point with uh, those kinds of tasks, but small things, if you write it down, sometimes it helps to let go then of that worry. If it's still something more chronic and like something you're not gonna solve uh, overnight, uh, it's important to find something that's very distracting uh, for you that you can easily disengage from. So uh, usually, reading a magazine article or listening to music. Um, a magazine article is better than, for example, like a novel, because if you read something that's a novel, like I'm um, just like Harry Potter or something, that can be a problem because you can't put it down, right? Then you can go a long time because it's very stimulating uh, to wake up. But a magazine article you can disengage from very quickly. But it's something to drive your focus away from those uh, kinds of things. Um, Sometimes some deep breathing techniques can be really, really helpful as well. Sometimes we go over something called box breathing, but essentially, and you have to do it consistently. And it takes a little while to, to do. But if you're doing it every day, then you can get better at it. Um, you know, it's you can see it online. But you basically take a deep breath in over four seconds, breathing through your nose, and you count to four, like. And. I, I can't count and breathe at the same time. And then you breathe out for four seconds and then hold it for four seconds and then do the same thing. And you just imagine a box with every side being like four seconds, breathing in, uh, in through your nose, out through your mouth, in through your nose, out through your mouth, and then doing the same cycle and doing it for about three cycles, but really concentrating on uh, your breathing. So that can take you away from, uh, you know, hopefully the, the worries that you might be uh, thinking of. Uh, There are several other apps uh, I think that are available that can teach sort of different kinds of relaxation breathing exercise if it's still uh, kind of a problem.
0: Right. Right. Great suggestions. Yeah. Uh, I also heard about a, there's a podcast um, that is, designed to be boring. Uh, to, is it like a, Someone's reading stories in a very monotone drawn out voice and the idea is just to put you to sleep. Uh, hopefully this podcast won't do that. But um, <laughs> <Not yet>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super interesting. And I just wanted to uh, touch a little bit on um, something that comes up unfortunately a little too often um, when people are dealing with chronic sleep issues, um, that of self medicating. Um, Just concerned about uh, people using sleeping pills, uh, sometimes alcohol and other substances to uh, treat some of the the symptoms that we've been talking about of disrupted sleep. What are your your views on on all these different types of medication and, and substances?
1: Well, yeah, I hear a lot about uh, people using these substances, uh, especially lawyers. I think their their favorites are probably alcohol and marijuana, at least uh, in my experience. So alcohol is a very tricky drug. Uh, Interestingly, the effects of acute alcohol use are different from chronic alcohol use. So acute use uh, usually actually helps people to fall asleep. It may increase deep sleep in the first half of the night. They get uh, suppression of REM sleep in the first half, but they get more uh, REM sleep in the second half of the night. So they get what we call this REM rebound in the second half of the night, often leading to fairly disturbing dreams. And it's actually easy to wake up from REM sleep. So often, though, I feel like they just wake up a little bit too early. Well, to a person who takes alcohol to help them sleep, well, I took alcohol. I fell asleep faster. I felt like I got a deep sleep. I just woke up a little bit too early what's the logical conclusion that any intelligent person would make (laughs) from that experience? (laughs) Ah, I just must have needed a little more alcohol, then I probably would have stayed asleep a little bit longer. And then this is a problem because we know then chronic alcohol use, now how people go from acute to chronic and where that line is, that's different for everybody. Then we see that the benefits for what we call sleep latency, that's falling asleep, are lost. There's a suppression of deep sleep and REM sleep. Remember, those are the two parts of sleep we need to feel more refreshed. And the overall quality of sleep just deteriorate. There's a lot more uh, fragmentation of sleep. But then they're constantly chasing that initial first experience that they had with the alcohol. And this is probably a path to developing uh, what is now called alcohol use disorder, where people are starting to abuse uh, alcohol, at least for a certain uh, segment of the population. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's alcohol. Now, marijuana is even a more complicated drug. I mean, there's there's over 150 active ingredients in uh, cannabis that uh, may have psychoactive properties, the two that are probably most commonly studied are tetrahydrocannabinol or THC and cannabidiol, the, the CBD. So, uh, largely speaking, we know that chronic cannabis use will tend to suppress deep sleep and REM sleep, although acutely there may be some benefits for decreasing uh, anxiety. But again, chronic use, usually those benefits are, are lost. Uh, so. Again, the sleep will not be as restorative or as refreshing over the long-term. There may be certain patient populations, however, where cannabis use can actually be uh, helpful for sleep. That's a bit of a controversial uh, subject, but we don't have enough data to properly recommend who or when or at what interval or what dose uh, cannabis should be used. Should it be THC and CBD, or is it a ratio of one to the other that's better for certain people? These are all questions that are not sorted out yet, and this prevents us really from making any real uh, good recommendations for using uh, cannabis for sleep. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about something that's been around for a really long time, sleeping pills?
1: <laughs> sleeping pills. So I think uh, sleeping pills, um, And you know, there's, there's a lot of them on the market, obviously. Uh, well, so I mean, to put this in context, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine just published their, I think their most recent guidelines came out from 2017, looking at the efficacy of a, a whole range of sleeping pills that we use for sleep. But what's really funny is, for every medication they listed, like uh, uh, you know melatonin agonists and trazodone and Zopacone and you know all all the rest of them, the evidence in terms of uh, efficacy uh, and the available evidence for recommending all of these drugs, it was like weak, 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 weak everywhere. It's it's you know mm. for the seventeen drugs, evidence is generally uh, very weak. For acute uh, treatment of insomnia, for example, if you just have like a stressor coming up. Uh, some kind of deadline to meet and you're just not sleeping well or something just going on that's very acute, these medications can have benefit. They, they can help uh, like as a group and you know different medications are different. You have to consult your doctor to find out which one might be appropriate, but largely speaking, they can help people fall asleep and even stay asleep uh, at night. It's where people go from acute to chronic use. The chronic use is generally not recommended in the absence of some kind of psychiatric or other medical disorder. So uh, if, if there's a, psych, uh, a psychiatric issue or a medical issue, then that is a little bit different. That's where some of those medications can be helpful. But you know something that uh, is you know really interesting is the drive to sleep for us is actually incredibly strong. It's almost as strong as the drive to breathe. We know that when people are sleep deprived, like you know people will be in a car like about to die and they'll actually fall asleep, right? if, if they are sleep deprived and like it's just and incredible—it it overcomes that uh, kind of drive. So as long as we don't put things in the way for that, and so that's like stressors, and you don't nap, and you don't have uh, cocaine or other drugs to sabotage that drive to sleep. Even if we don't sleep well one night, where it's a very high likelihood that we'll sleep well the following night, and if not by the following, almost guaranteed by the third night, that you sleep, uh, you know, much better. Again, that's in the absence of any other medical or psychiatric uh, issue
0: hmm. And I imagine that's why the um, uh, the uh, what's it called? Oh my goodness, I lost my words completely. <laughs> well, the suggestion to get out of bed if you're you know staring at the ceiling for twenty minutes and do something um, boring and come back to bed and keep doing that, uh, you know, a- eventually your body is going to sleep. Just it's going to have to
1: sleep. Right. You just uh, let drive take over exactly
0: yeah yeah, so interesting, Dr. Lee. Wow, well, thank you so much for sharing all your expertise with us. I'm just wondering if there's anything that um, you think that uh, we should talk about that we haven't had a chance to yet. Anything else that um, we didn't touch on?
1: Well, I think one thing that occurs to me is some people actually, you know, I know we've always talked about making sleep a priority, and maybe that's the case for you know most lawyers. Some people actually, I will say go the other way. They almost make sleep too much of a priority uh and this can actually be a problem too like if you think you need eight hours of sleep to function adequately in the day and you're trying to spend 10 hours in bed trying to get that eight hours of sleep that also can be uh, an issue that's like trying to put a size eight foot into a size 10 shoe Mm -hmm. sometimes you can't fall asleep sometimes you wake up too early uh at night uh or uh, in the middle of the night and that can also be a problem so in those cases sometimes restricting the time in bed can actually be helpful i mean i think my big take-home message is i've been practicing, more years than I care to remember, I guess, (laughs) um, is that I think the most important thing to remember is we need balance uh, for um, our sleep. When when our body is out of balance, for whatever reason, whether it's stress from uh, life or physical issues or medical issues or mental health issues, uh, that's where sleep can really uh, suffer. Now, obviously, there can be other sleep disorders too, uh, but uh, the I think the most important thing is to try to you know, find that balance again in your life and then I think sleep will generally improve uh, for most uh, people. Uh, I know it's, I, I guess it sounds a little bit uh, hokey, <laughs> but uh, and then to, to achieve that balance, you have to look at not only the biology of sleep but also that psychology of sleep too. And, and ignoring one or the other, uh, that's where sleep problems can emerge.
0: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm yeah so well said well well thank you so much for being with us and spending so much time talking about this super important topic for lawyers and for everyone really really appreciate it dr lee
1: oh it's been my pleasure thank you for having me
0: thanks for joining me today on the xl legal podcast i hope you enjoyed the conversation i'm always looking for topic and guest ideas so if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.